Dionysian Revival, Reflections on the Bacchae by Euripides, and William Golding's Lord of the Flies by Gil Bailey, produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 1. Maybe it's good to start this morning with an image from the end of the Bacchae, because we've had an example of it, a very vivid example of it, in the form of the O.J. Simpson tragedy, uh, or the Nicole Brown Simpson tragedy, depending on how you want to characterize it. But in any event, maybe it would be good to start with that, because this was my experience. My experience was my family was was away, so, and I was working late, as I do when my family was away, so... Uh, mealtime was almost gone, dinner time was almost gone, but I looked at my little schedule and noticed that the Giants were playing away and that their game was televised. So I'm a Giants fan, so I went to watch a baseball game at the pizza parlor. We don't have a TV at home, so when I get a chance, I go watch the baseball game at the pizza parlor. So I went into the pizza parlor, I got my sandwich and my beer, and I went into the room with the big screen, and everybody is... It's a totally silent room. Everybody's watching, and there's this white car driving down a freeway. And no Giants game. And I was, I, and I saw, I sat down with my sandwich and my beer, thinking, well, surely they'll turn the Giants game on. And then I realized what was happening. I mean, it took me a few minutes to realize what was happening. It was totally riveting. I felt, why? I can't watch this, but I can't not watch this. What am I going to do? Well, I had a sandwich to eat, so I got up and left because I, Whatever, without the sandwich, I probably would have stayed, but I couldn't eat my sandwich. You know, he has a gun to his head in the back of, of, of this Bronco. I mean, I couldn't exactly eat my sandwich and watch to see. So I went in the other room and, and ate my sandwich, and then I went back in just for about five more minutes before I left, and the drama, of course, was still going on. And then I left. Like everybody else in America, I had this examination of conscience. What? What is it? What made that so riveting? Why was it I couldn't tear myself away from that? Knowing that somehow it, I needed to, and at the same time, I couldn't. Then I also noticed that it had a cathartic effect on me. By that I mean that when I walked out of the pizza parlor, I felt closer in a way to people, in the sense that there was some terrible, tragic thing happening that was erasing all the superficial things that usually clutter our minds and our relationships. So that if I had run into somebody, casual acquaintance or whatnot, my contact may not have been overly social. I would have felt more closer in a way to people. And I just thought about that. And I thought, well, this is precisely what the ancients meant by catharsis. Some kind of cathartic, some kind of tragic events where somebody's life is being wasted right in front of your eye, causes you to erase all of that stuff that, that usually keeps the sociodrama moving around on the surface. And we're at another level. But on the other hand, what brought that about was this terrible thing. One of my themes is from Reinhold Niebuhr, where he says we should have the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. That's as a motto, has served me well. But at the moment when this O.J. Simpson thing was happening, I had 
the Baki of Euripides in one hand and the newspaper in the other. Now that's an altogether different experience. Well, I shouldn't say altogether different experience. It, uh, it makes the reading of the newspaper a different experience. And so I've been going through the last week under those conditions. And one of the things that leapt out at me when I thought about this, what was happening with the O.J. Simpson affair is that America was witnessing a Greek tragedy. It was a Greek tragedy with almost every element there, including the chorus, including the falling of the great, including the what in the really supreme tragedies is always the recognition scene. And the recognition scene is when suddenly the tragic one realizes what he has done or what she has done. At the end of the Baki, you know, Agave, who's Pentheus's mother, looks down and sees the decapitated head of her son in her hand and for the first time recognizes what she has done. And so the O.J. Simpson affair had everything that Greek tragedy had. And it was compelling, I think, for exactly the same reason that 15,000 people attended the the Greek tragedies in Athens at the high point of the uh, tragic theater. It was a religious ritual of sorts. It provided a catharsis, which is a religious phenomenon. Religious, not in maybe in the sense we think of it in the Judeo-Christian tradition, but certainly in the anthropological sense of religion, it's a religious phenomenon. And one went on the other day, and when it went on, we everybody found themselves unable to turn away. Most of us did. And it put me in mind of something that came to me. There was some discussion about how the third world, so-called, is sinking into chaos, and, and we in the, in the developed world, or the whatever we call ourselves these days, are sort of drawing up the lifeboats because, for all kinds of reasons, some of which are plausible and some of which are not. But in any event, I was thinking about how 6 o'clock news provides us with a view of these tragedies. And that view is, is a kind of Greek tragedy in itself. We get to vicariously watch disintegration and violence and feel some kind of pathos that doesn't cost us a penny, you know. But in any event, we get to feel it vicariously and maybe even feel a little moral superiority and so on. And so it perhaps has a, a psychological and social function that we haven't reckoned. And then, of course, the O.J. Simpson thing happened. It was perfectly clear that there was something like that going on. I myself felt it. So I want to come back to that, of course, a little bit later. But before I do, I want to vent some of my feelings that came from having the Baki in one hand and the newspaper in the other. This morning's class is about sex and violence. Now, I should be able to bring in the crowds with sex and violence, although I may be treating them slightly differently. We say them in one phrase often. We talk about, we, we wring our hands over the popular culture's exploitation of sex and violence all the time. And it's become one phrase almost, sex and violence, sex and violence. And, of course, the ancients knew that as well. There was a Mars and Aphrodite were married. There was a 
an inevitable relationship between Eros and Thanatos. Um, and of course, the supreme example of that, although we miss it in the modern age for, for reasons I'll get to in a minute, is Dionysus. Dionysus is the one who, who plays the sex card, so to speak, but not for sexual reasons, for frenetic reasons, because the Dionysian crescendo is a murder. And all of these are things that the ancients, or at least people like Euripides, understood a good deal better than we do, it seems to me. Because when we think of Dionysus, we think of the Roman god Bacchus or Pan, you know, somebody, this playful little figure who, who is a bon vivant, who frolics around and, and gives us a respite from any of these rules that somehow pinch on us and so on. So we like to think of Dionysus as a Pan figure, not realizing that he's also the source of panic and pandemonium. And we don't want to look at that part of it. But of course, it's everywhere. When you look out now, you look at the look out at the world. You look at the newspaper. You realize it's becoming precisely that. So that's another reason I chose to return to Euripides the Bacchae, not because the play. I'm going to treat the play all that differently. It's a short play. It's straightforward. It's shockingly straightforward. I mean, it would be very difficult to miss what Euripides is trying to say. But on the other hand, and I, this sounds condescending. On the other hand, when you read commentaries that were written in the 60s and 70s, it's amazing how many people missed it. But I think it's unmistakable what Euripides is up to, and most present commentators notice it right away. Uh, but I probably wouldn't have noticed it myself in the 60s and 70s if I'd had the good sense to read it, which I didn't. Wallace Gray, who's the former professor of comparative literature at Columbia, wrote a short piece on the Bakke in which he talked about uh, Euripides and the, and the times in which he lived, and he said the following. The plague that struck Athens in the first years of the Peloponnesian War, Peloponnesian War lasted about 25 years. During it, it exhausted Athens. Athens was finally defeated by Sparta at, uh, two years after Euripides died. So Euripides really, as I will say later on, I'm interrupting myself, as I'll maybe try to mention later on, I always think of the tragedians and the Hebrew prophets as having something like the same niche in their respective cultures. And I think the Hebrew prophets are more profound than the tragedians, not because they're more profound inherently, but because the Hebrew prophets saw a religious path leading out of the sacrificial world they were critiquing. And the tragedians didn't. And so the, the age of the Greek tragedians, there's a blossoming in the 5th century Athens. And then it dies out. Now, the prophetic age was much longer in Israel's history, but it too died out. But what it left behind was what eventually produced the New Testament and continues to be the engine of human history. I, I really believe that. The tragedians, on the other hand, did not have a religious alternative, a religiously significant alternative to what they were critiquing. Nevertheless, their voice is very powerful, almost more powerful in a way, because there's this forlorn aspect when one reads them. Of these people who emerged who maybe didn't see it perfectly clearly, the Hebrew prophets didn't either, but they saw it better than we see it 2,500 years later, a lot of them did, and left this 
critique of something. Euripides is at the end of that process. He dies two years before the Peloponnesian War ends with the defeat of Athens and uh, the great heyday of Athenian culture is past. And he sees it going. The reason I got into that is because that he's very much like somebody like Jeremiah who's living right before the Babylonian exile and can see the writing on the wall, can see where it's going. He's trying to send a message to his people before it's too late. And the Baki is the last extant play of Euripides. So in a way, it has a very powerful place just in the history of its time. So back to uh, Wallace Gray. He speaks of the plague that struck Athens in the first century of the Peloponnesian War. And then he says that plague the unnecessary butchery of both friends and enemies that took place during the war, the total loss of self-control that happened simultaneously, led many Athenians to return to the earlier and more primitive Dionysiac celebration. The religion, complete with rituals of animal or human sacrifice, lasted well into the second century of the Christian era. End quote. So this is the world in which Euripides is operating. He's not trying to expose the Dionysian antiquity. He's not trying to say, look, for all of the romanticism, the Dionysian phenomenon is murderous at its, at its conclusion. He's not simply saying that. He's talking about his time, what's happening in his culture. A cultural meltdown is happening. And he recognizes that, if you will, the, the default position on human social order is Dionysian. That when there's a meltdown, it, the meltdown leads to whatever, how, you know, whatever you want to call it. Call it Shiva if you want to call it that. But it's Dionysian. And he saw it. He saw the breakdown coming. And, of course, those who flocked to the Dionysian cult in, at the time of Euripides were unaware of precisely what he wrote the Baki in order to make them aware of. That is to say, they were caught up in the romance. That's an anachronistic term, of course, to apply to the Greeks. But they were caught up in the, in, in the elan of the Dionysian event. And what Euripides is trying to do is to show them where it's all leading. And, of course, we in our world have been caught up in that elan. And I don't mean just since the 60s, but it's not something that just happened in the 60s. We have to go back to at least Nietzsche because all our ideas about this come from Nietzsche. And they would, we'd, we'd do a lot better if they came from Euripides. But in any event, here's what I wanted to read to you. This was in the newspaper the other day. The, the title of the article is Symposium to Study Ancient's View of Sex by Don Latin in the Chronicle on uh, June 22nd. It starts out this way. This is very funny. Tired of hearing only what the Pope has to say about marriage, birth control, and human sexuality? I am, aren't you? I mean, you turn, you turn on the TV and all you hear is what the Pope has to say about sexuality. Really, you, it's just such a din in our ears that uh, you, one gets tired of it after a while. Jungian psychologist James Hillman 
suggests a journey back to those Dionysian days before Catholic popes and Hebrew prophets started telling people what to do with their bodies and their minds. <laughs> well, I must say, Hillman has been doing this sort of thing for years and years. I must say that Dionysian enthusiasts know exactly where the problem is. They know exactly what has to be put out of the way if a real Dionysian revival is going to be accomplished. And I think we should just keep your eyes open and you will notice that a lot of these things are now beginning to take on a specific antipathy for the Judeo-Christian tradition. What began 10 years ago as a kind of general sort of multiculturalism, which said, well, everybody has to have their play and so on, and uh, let's not keep anything out and so on, is now turning into something other. It's turning into a specific attempt to quarantine the biblical revelation and to keep it out of play in the social arena so that these, if these other things are going to happen, if, if somebody's not going to rain on the parade, the biblical tradition is going to have to be gotten out of the way. So anyway, I, I congratulate Dr. Hillman on, on his insight into what really is standing in the way of, of what he's proposing. Quote, Could it be that the pagan gods are trying to get through to us? Asked Hillman. After all, they were here before Christianity. Now there is an intellectually compelling argument. If that doesn't persuade you, what will? I mean, witch burning was around before procedural due process. Shall we revert? You see? Uh, so, continuing with the article. Hillman, the former director of Zurich Jung Institute, plans to revive the sex and love gospel, gospel of Hera, Venus, and Aphrodite Saturday at a day-long symposium in Berkeley. Uh, quoting... Uh, quoting... Uh, Dr. Hillman, these instincts belong to the goddesses and gods that the Hebrew world and then the Christian world were opposing in the pagan Mediterranean. Ishtar and Aphrodite and Venus. There's a political correctness here. He knows, he knows that by invoking the female deities, nobody would dare attack him for fear of being accused of being a patriarch or something. So then he goes on. These were the gods and goddesses of the sexual life. Hera was the goddess of coupling. Well, end quote. Well, now Hera was murderously jealous of her husband Zeus's relentless acts of sexual betrayal, killing, crippling, and cursing Zeus's lovers and their offspring. So that's who Hera was, who is now the goddess of coupling. Coupling? Coupling? Isn't that something animals do? I mean, I'm all, you see, do we need a goddess for, anyway, there's another question besides that, and that is, it's tacky, no doubt, to raise this question, but did she exist, this Hera, who's the goddess of coupling? Is there such one, such a, such a thing, you see? Well, anyway, I'm, uh, I'm having fun, really. But uh, one more thing at Dr. Hillman's expense. I'm sure if he would be having as much fun at mine, so he just doesn't know I exist. 
Um, but one more thing at his expense. He's giving two major lectures. The first lecture is entitled, Why Hera is Called the Queen of Heaven. Now notice this is the gospel that we have to get rid of the Hebrew prophets and the, Christ, and, and the Christian tradition, and we have to have another gospel, and we have to have Hera, Queen of Heaven, and so on. You see, all of it is, it's, it's all conscious or unconscious parody. There's only one thing to talk about. And that's the uh, revelation that's driving history right now. And if, if you're trying to escape from it, you have to talk about it in some parodied form. But in any event, that's the first uh, topic of Dr. Hillman's uh, day-long thing. And the second lecture is on the benefits of pornography. Quote, Fantasy images are important, Hillman said. The anti-porn people realize this. They want to stop fantasy images and thereby feel they can control or blunt the sexual impulse. Well, that's sheer nonsense. And I'm being mean and partly because I'm irritated by all this and partly because I have uh, 13 and 11-year-old uh, children and, and I look out on the world and I see what's coming of this kind of nonsense. Despite all the romantic and revolutionary talk about the revival of Dionysian desire, it's really Nietzsche's warmed-over Dionysus and not Euripides' psychopathological one that is in the heads of the modern enthusiasts. The question is, who are the purveyors of the modern Dionysian myth? And one of them is Nietzsche. And so I want to read to you something about Nietzsche, written by Stefan Zweig in, and quoted by Walter Kaufman in The Portable Nietzsche. Here is a picture of the man who bequeathed to the world this enthusiasm for the Dionysian. Okay, here it is. Carefully, the myopic man sits down to a table. Carefully, the man with the sensitive stomach considers every item on the menu whether the tea is not too strong, the food not spiced too much. For every mistake in his diet upsets his sensitive digestion, and every transgression in his nourishment wreaks havoc with his quivering nerves for days. No glass of wine, no glass of beer, no alcohol, no coffee at his place, no cigar and no cigarette after his meal, nothing that stimulates, that stimulates refreshes or rests him. Only the short, meager meal and a little urbane, unprofound conversation in a soft voice with an occasional neighbor. And up again, into the small, narrow, modest, coldly furnished apartment, where innumerable notes, pages, writings, and proofs are piled up on the table, but no flower, no decoration, and on a tray, innumerable bottles and jars and potions against the migraines, against the stomach cramps, against the spasmodic vomiting, against the slothful intestines, and above all, the dreadful sedatives against his insomnia, a frightful arsenal of poisons and drugs, yet the only helpers in the empty silence of this strange room in which he never rests except in brief and artificially conquered sleep. Wrapped in his overcoat and a woolen scarf, for the wretched stove smokes only and does not give warmth, his fingers freezing, his double glasses pressed close to the paper, his, hand, his hurried hand writes for hours, words the dim eyes can hardly decipher. For hours he sits like this, 
and writes until his eyes burn, end quote. That's Nietzsche. Now, I'm not doing that to make fun of Nietzsche. The poor man was had this condition. The point is, this is the man that left the world the myth of the Dionysian. Now, he got it from Wagner. And Wagner was interested in it for more, more robust reasons. He was interested in it for all the reasons moderns are interested in. So Wagner was all in favor of destroying the social order in order to liberate sexuality. But Nietzsche was interested in liberating sexuality in order to destroy the social order. And he's the one that franchised the myth of Dionysus to the modern world. And it's that myth that is so powerful in our world now. At the level of popular culture, it has won the day. So, now there's another figure who played an important role. And I have a little bit of a relationship to this figure in a way because when I was in San Francisco in the 60s, there was a place called, in, in the warehouse district, called Project Artaud, refurbished warehouse. And I didn't know who Artaud was from, you know, the man in the moon. Artaud became famous or infamous in the 20s and 30s. He was a French producer, theatrical philosopher in a way, I guess you'd say, or dramatist. And he wrote a book in the 30s called The Theater of Cruelty. And he, he was one of the main spokesmen for the revival of the Dionysian. And Louis Saz, I got onto this because of Louis Saz's book on madness and modernity or whatever it's called. And uh, Saz talks about Artaud and he says th this, of particular relevance is Artaud's emblematic status for devotees of an extreme anti-rationalism. He has been presented as the supreme example of a Dionysian madness, a sort of wild man figure whose literary productions have been said to display, quote, the uncontrollable polymorphous movement of desire, and to show that, quote, emotion released from all restraint can result in a glorious rhetoric of unbridled passion, end quote. Notice the noun in rhetoric. A glorious rhetoric of unbridled passion. Artaud went to Mexico in the, in the midst of all this, in order to be in close proximity to peyote and the Aztec culture. Saz quotes Artaud, who said that he well knew, quote, that there is something in me damaged from an emotional point of view. In matters of feeling, I can't even find anything that would correspond to feeling, which reminds me of what the some of the social work people say about young people today that find their way into juvenile justice system or something, they say the lights, they look into their eyes and they say the lights are on but nobody's home. And Artaud is, is an example of this. This is somebody who was, who was invoking the Dionysian revival. Dionysian passions substitute for feeling. All real feeling is empathetic and relational.
Dionysian passions are an intoxicating devil's brew of self-absorption, self-loathing, self-annihilation, and seething resentment. Lust, according to the Christian tradition, is a deadly sin. But for a long, long time, the Christian tradition has held that it is the easiest sin to cure. You see, if all of this were lust, it, we would have an easy go of it. If Dante is right, you know, Dante put in the purgatorial climb, lust is the last one because it's the easiest one. It's the closest one to, to virtue. Unfortunately, there's hardly any real lust to be found in the world-weary sexual theme park that the youth culture has become. And long before the glutted and jaded sexual boredom turns violent, those not fooled by the hysteria and hype can begin to see that the lights are on but nobody's home. And that's a symptom that the Dionysian carnival is, is moving out of its sexual phase towards its violent one. And that move is predicted by Euripides 2,500 years ago, and we've seen it time and again. While Nietzsche was proposing a Dionysian revival, he was also saying, as he says at the very end of his last book, it, we, it's a choice between Dionysus and Christ. And Professor James Hillman understands that pretty well. In, intuitively, if not uh, right out of the pages of, of Nietzsche. And so I'd like to do a little dilation on that for a second. There are two forms of transcendence, one of them genuine, one of them not, I would say. One is what uh, Girard, it corresponds more or less to what Girard in one of his early books called deviated transcendence. Deviated transcendence. Deviated transcendence is the conjuring out of the madness of mimetic passion, a shimmering phantasmagoria, and losing oneself in its vertigo. It's a frenzy that ends in nihilism and violence. Until it so ends, it simulates transcendence. It gives one a sense that one is involved in something bigger than oneself. One gets caught up in it. The crowd, the mob phenomenon, the frenzy is always a deviated transcendence. It really has no ultimate, there is no real vertical dimension to it, if I could use that kind of metaphor. There is no real transcendence. It's all a kind of transcendence conjured out of the social soup. And so it's a phantasm. And that's what the Dionysian provides. It provides a, a semblance of real transcendence. But there's a big price to pay. And that is that social phenomenon tends to, to deconstruct itself until it gets to the place where it, it's violent. Nietzsche, Kierkegaard, and Dostoevsky are the ones who designate resentment or resentment as the modern problem par excellence. The driving force in this frenzy, this deviated transcendence, is resentment. And one of the things that I appreciated from one of the papers in Wiesbaden was a paper by uh, Jean-Pierre Dupuis 
who defined resentiment in an interesting way. He, he calls it, quote, a secret fascination for the apparent autonomy of the other, which cannot rest until it has demystified it. And that, that resentiment can take place at any level. It can take place at the level of individual human relationships, where people resent the, what, the apparent autonomy of the other and need somehow to destroy it, to expose its falsehoods. Or it can take place at, at a cultural level, where one needs to expose the apparent autonomy of some institution or some tradition or, or whatever it is. And I want to come back to Dupuy's definition later when we talk about some other things. Deviated transcendence. And it's what the Dionysian revival is all about. And the other form of transcendence, this is just, I'm just adhering to Nietzsche's insight that it's a choice between Dionysus and Christ. The other form of transcendence is, I think, true transcendence. And it's summed up in two great commandments in the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's not a transcendence that leaves the world behind at all. It's a transcendence that makes our worldly life vivid and real. It has the two things that are parodied in the Dionysian one. And I want to go on a little bit about that, but at this point I would like to turn to Leonard Cohen. Leonard Cohen is a marvelous guy because he's, he's got the Hebrew prophet in him, but he's lived in the modern world and been caught up in its funny business as well. And he, he, his life becomes an interesting, and particularly because he reports on it so well, uh, it becomes very interesting commentary. So here's a poem entitled Fragment from a Journal, and I offer it as a, just a meditation about the world in which we live and the difference between transcendence and deviated transcendence, Nietzsche and Christ. Cohen says, I lit a stick of incense. I sat down on a small cushion, crossing my legs in a full lotus. For over an hour... I thought about how much I hated one of my ex-wives. One of my ex-wives. He's reporting to us from the front. Now, I started out talking about the O.J. Simpson tragedy. Okay, well, Leonard Cohen is reporting from out there where those things are happening. And he's trying to take measures that will bring him back from the edge of that abyss. And so he's gotten himself a small cushion and sitting full lotus. It's not working. He least realizes that something has to happen. And then he goes on. It was still dark when I began writing a metaphysical song called Letter to the Christians, in which I attempted to exaggerate the maturity of my own religious experience and invalidate everyone else's especially those who claimed a renewed spiritual vitality. Several days later, I had four stanzas of eight lines each, which certified that I received the Holy Spirit, attained to a deep enlightenment, circumcised my soul with the wine of love, and, quote, accustomed myself to the clemency of the Lord, end quote. I told the song to Anthony that afternoon as we were standing knee-deep in the Aegean Sea. We had a good laugh. He especially liked 
this verse, quote, The imitations of his love he sponsors patiently. Until you can be born with him some hopeless nights in Galilee. Until you lose your pride in him. Until your faith objective fails. Until you stretch your arms so wide you do not need these Roman nails. A few minutes later, Antony produced a reply. I really hope you stumble on the great red whore of Babylon, forget the grace, enjoy the lace, have some fun and carry on. He is very fast. The beach was full of beautiful young women whom I desired uniformly at a very low intensity. I saw a newborn Christian on a rock contemplating the beauty of his handiwork and I hurried off to let her know that I had been touched by grace. My song almost made her cry. She hadn't known, quote, that I knew the Lord, end quote. To me, it's a poem, prose poem and poem, about the dilemma. You know, it's not a solution. It's about the dilemma. It's about feeling all of these things, you see. And the ignorance, I shall say, of a comment by Hillman to the effect that somehow Christianity has been in the business of, of squelching sexuality. It made a sacrament out of it, for goodness sake. It regards it as the great moment of human relation. And uh, Leonard Cohen is steeped in the biblical tradition. And at the same time, he's knee-deep in the Aegean, he's knee-deep in the modern world. His mention of ex-wives in the plural is an example of it. His own life has been what it has been. Give me his advice any day over this kind of nonsense that people like Hillman are putting in. For example, he starts off with resentment, spending a whole hour hating his, one of his ex-wives. And then he decides to write a letter to the Christians. And then he writes a poem in which he talks about uh, being born in Galilee and throwing one's arms so wide open one doesn't need the Roman nail. And then he goes out on the beach and he says, it was full of beautiful young women whom I desired uniformly at a very low intensity. If, there is, if there's a line that captures the kind of blending of eros and agape that's got to be it now i'm not i don't know what to make of this poem i just share it with you as something from somebody who's more trustworthy who may not be a paragon of agapeic virtue but at least he's somebody that's solidly within the great biblical tradition he could write the song of solomon he probably has in their fact he could write the song the great song and he did. He wrote a book about the Psalms, as a matter of fact. There has never been a culture which regarded sexuality as something ordinary. Every culture has always put sexuality off in a special place. All kinds of arrangements 
It has not always been Ozzie and Harriet. No culture has ever, ever regarded sexuality as something that can take place casually upon the impulse of the individuals involved in the culture. Never. But more profoundly than that, either we hallow sexuality, put it in a special place, recognize the mystery that it represents, or if we refuse to hallow it and sanction it in some way, it will be turned into a vulgar fetish and made into the instrument of our moral and psychological and spiritual undoing. It's like religion. Sexuality is like religion. It will either be sacramental or sacrificial. And we don't realize that because we don't understand what Euripides was driving at. We don't see the relationship. And not just Euripides, of course. You know, read Troilus and Cressida. Our literature is filled with this understanding of what the sexual uh, romp can lead to. So I think it would be either be sacramental or sacrificial. And ultimately, I think these are the only two options. And that doesn't mean it had to be sacramental in, a entire, in an exclusively Christian way by any stretch of the imagination. Unless it's given some special status, it will eventually become sacrificial. And if you want to see what the early signs of that are, check out the modern pop music culture. And look at the expression on the faces of the people on MTV. I don't ever see MTV, but I, I read about it. And occasionally I look at the lyrics of songs and check it out. There's a huge modern industry, and I don't mean, just mean a commercial industry, I mean a modern myth, really, which is inviting young people up Mount Citheron with all kinds of promises of liberation. And the young people, they don't know any better. It's not their fault. It won't do any good for us older people to sit here and wag our heads and say, oh, well, the young generation going to hell. What do they know? Somebody's standing at the foot of Mount Citheron saying, right this way, folks. This is where the liberation is. And all they have, on the other hand, is some uptight Pentheus saying, no, no, no. This is where we've, we've, let, the, we've, we've let the ball down, you know. That Dante was trying to get people to go up the Purgatorial Mountains. He says, you want to experience real liberation? You know, at the top of the Purgatorial Mountain, Virgil says to Dante, you're now free to do anything you want. Because you have learned in the course of this journey we have taken the depth of the two great commandments. To want, first of all, to know the living God. And secondly, to be in the presence of others, loving them as much as yourself. Now he says you're free. And then he says, whereas before it would have been sinful for you to do whatever you wanted, now it would be sinful for you not to. That's the Purgatorial Mountain. So here's Dante over there at the Purgatorial Mountain saying, here it is, folks, the ticket to freedom. And this, and this the whole array of hucksters at the base. There's money to be made out there, folks, on this message. There's money to be made on the cheapest kind of trash 
at the local theater appealing to the lowest common denominator of 14, 15 year old. And a lot of people saying, right up Mount Scytheron, folks, this is where liberation is. This is the world we live in. Yesterday, Clinton unloaded on these right-wing radio guys, but they have an appeal. They have an appeal in part because they recognize something is going on. Now, they are attacking it as Pentheus did in a very clumsy way and in a, I can't say a mean-spirited way because I've been mean-spirited this morning myself, but in Rudyard Kipling's If, he says, trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. And I think we have to make allowance for what, in part, the appeal of some of these people is that they see the terrible catastrophe that's happening in our culture. And so that's why I wanted to read Euripides again. Because I, and I think we have an obligation to the young people to, to be on Dante's side and not to feel bad about it. You know, the problem, reason Dante's over there by himself is because anybody who stands on that, the base of that mountain and says this is the one to go up is immediately regarded as being a sexual Puritan or a this or that, you know, all of those things. Or, a, you know, the voice of patriarchy or the all of the ways that we have of completely dispensing with that. So what I wanted to say is what the people at the base of the Mount Scytheron in our world don't say is that the, at the top of it is a murder. That the, This mountain is very much like the Aztec shrine, the Aztec pyramid. And at the top of it is a murder. At the top of it is violence. And at the top of the one Dante is pointing to is something else. And so I would say that sexuality will either be bacchanalian or covenantal. I think those are the only two choices. When I say covenantal, I'm not... There could be all kinds of arrangements, you see. And what's appropriate in one culture may not be appropriate in another and so on. All co but covenantal in the sense that it takes place in a world of commitment. And the only alternative to that is the Bacchanalian one. And, and when, one, when it gets out of the world of commitment, it doesn't immediately become Bacchanalian. It drifts that way. It drifts that way, and the resentments build. And everything done to get rid of the resentments, like Leonard Cohen sitting on the little cushion in the full lotus, increase them. Every, every little compromise and arrangement made in order to lessen the resentments have the effect of increasing them. What this little sermon is about is the, is to, is the Bacchanalian and the covenantal context for sexuality or the other way to put it would be the sacrificial and the sacramental okay so that i'm going to go back to oj simpson for a second but in order to pick up on these things that we've talked about so far i want to invoke again jean-pierre dupuis definition of resentment quote a secret fascination for the apparent autonomy of the other which cannot rest until it has demystified it. And I want to combine, that's Leonard Cohen hating his, one of his ex-wives for a whole hour. 
And I want to combine that with one of the most important things Bob Hammer and Kelly says in his book on Paul, when he tries to define what Paul means by a failed mind. You know, in Romans, Paul talks about the failed mind. And, or sometimes translated, the reprobate mind. And Bob says, quote, it's a mind enslaved. It desires not only to possess the other, but to consume or destroy. It wishes not only to imitate the other, nor merely to possess itself in the other, but to destroy the other as the place where the self is alien to itself. That's an incredible insight into the way in which Eros becomes violent. And so that's what happened in the O.J. Simpson tragedy. Now, you know, Greek tragedy is about nothing else. Greek tragedy is about family members murdering family members. Oedipus, Agamemnon, Iphigenia, Orestes, Medea, that's what it's about. It's about people falling into these frenzies, these sacrificial frenzies that are so profound that it brings about the murdering of family members by family members. It's a, In other words, that's the point at which it becomes recognizable madness. And that's what Greek tragedy is all about. And I say recognizable because what Greek tragedy is really about is about recognition. It's about the moment of recognition. The real climax of every Greek tragedy is the moment of recognition. When suddenly Oedipus realizes what he has done. Uh, Agave sees the head of her son in her hand. The moment of recognition. So I want to go back to this tragedy, and I, in a way, this is this is as questionable as some of the other things I've done already this morning, in that I'm exploiting, in a way, a tragedy, and I I don't feel comfortable about that. But on the other hand, there are tragedies all around us. The point is to learn from. One of the problems always is that the themes in the stories that we see leap out at us. And so we get caught up in the thematics of, a, of something and don't see the structure. And it's the structure that's really revelatory. It really shows you what's going on. And the thematics are what gets played out on the surface of the story. So we get caught up in surface details. Anyway, Bob Herbert uh, writes a column, occasional column, and he had a column, as so many people did in last week, about the O.J. Simpson thing. And his column brings out, really, the, the parallel to Greek tragedy. He begins by saying, it's the most exciting and entertaining news story in years. The parade up the highway could have been scripted by Spielberg. Will O.J. get to call his mother? Will he blow his brains out in the back of Al Cowling's Bronco? He doesn't mention this, but he talks about what, is, what in fact in that drama was the chorus. He says, Folks up there on the overpass say they are swinging towels and chanting, Go, Juice, Go. 
because they are part of history. What they're saying is that it's real. So that's the chorus in this story, is all the people with the signs along the freeways and whatever they're saying. This is the choral background, you see. And then Herbert says, except, of course, it's not real. Not even close. The real events are off camera at a safe psychological distance, thus preserving the entertainment value of a spectacular double homicide. You know, in Greek tragedy, the murder always takes place off stage. So it's always reported by an actor or the chorus after the event. And likewise this, he says, the real thing is take, takes place at a psychological distance. You want to get a little closer to real? This reminds me of Eliot. I quoted Eliot last week in East Coker where he says, if you do not come too close, if you do not come too close, then you can watch this little ritual and you don't have it. But if you come too close, you see some things about it that will give you some other thoughts on the subject. So he says, uh, Herbert says, do you want to come a little closer to the real? Imagine a crazed and physically powerful man springing upon your mother, slashing and hacking away with a large knife until the main arteries in her neck are gone and her head is nearly severed and the blood is spurting and gushing in all directions. That's practically agave holding the head of Pentheus in her hand. You see what Herbert's doing? He's doing the same thing that Euripides was doing. In this in this thing, he's doing just what Euripides was doing. Euripides was saying, let me show you where it goes. Let me show you what's behind all this. And then he goes on, quote, the live television version of the O.J. Simpson drama is a strange and thrilling combination of technological magic, mass projection, and collective hypnosis. It's profoundly intoxicating, but it's not real. If it were real, we couldn't bear to watch. And that's just what Euripides is saying. Exactly that. And he's sending that message out to his contemporaries in a declining Athenian culture who are getting caught up in it. As you probably know, the tragic theater developed right out of the Dionysian sacrificial cult. The, the cult of Dionysus involved a Dionysian ritual in which there were incantations, dithyrams, of the Dionysian ritual, which ended in a sacrificial bloodletting. And, of course, in the original situation, it was a human victim, and it became an animal victim. The word tragedy comes from the word for goat. It was the goat play because the goat died when it became a goat uh, substitute, animal substitute. So, literally... Tragic theater has its roots clearly in the sacrificial rituals of the Dionysian cult. The tragic dramas were, were performed in the theater of Dionysus on the, the side of the Acropolis. And the center of the performance was an altar, and behind it was the priest of Dionysus. So what had happened is that there was an evolution of a ritual into a theatrical event. And so what you get in all tragic theater is this Dionysian story. Again, remember I said this thing about the themes blind us to the structures? 
The structure is the Dionysian sacrifice. And what the tragedians did is that they gave us these uh, multifaceted themes so that you have the story is part A, part B, part C, and sacrifice. And so Sophocles, uh, Aeschylus, Euripides take that Dionysian ritual structure and they tell a story. They, they foreground this, this thematics of their story, but it's exactly the same structure. And it's riveting for exactly the same reason, same reason that the thing on television last week of O.J. Simpson was riveting and so on. As I said before, we shouldn't let the themes blind us to the structure. And the themes in this play, for example, the Baki, have to do with the appeal of Dionysus, the narrow-mindedness and naivete of Pentheus, uh, the, the struggle between order and ecstasy, between male and female, between Apollo and Dionysus, and so on and so forth. All of these themes function mythologically in that they distract us from the sacrificial structure of the of the thing that's going on. And and Euripides is precisely trying to strip away some of that and show us the sacrificiality of the event. So I'm going very quickly here, but I want to do the first hymn at least, the first hymn of the chorus, because right away you see what Euripides is up to. He starts off I said the chorus starts and now the chorus consists of of women from Western Asia who have been caught up in the Dionysian uh, enthusiasm, and they have traveled with this strange priest of Dionysus, who is secretly Dionysus himself, disguised as a priest. And they're trying, and they're trying very successfully, to to draw all the all the uh, Theban women into their. This takes place in Thebes. This play takes place in Athens, but the setting for the story is Thebes. And they're they're trying to to bring all of the the women of Thebes into the Dionysian cult, and they're having a wildly successful time of it. And they're singing as the play begins, and they sing this, Fatigue is sweet to the limbs, an effortless effort to trek when you are shouting with joy, Go, Baki, go, 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 bring God's godly son, our Bromius, down from the Phrygian hill. Bromius is another name for Dionysus. Dionysus has lots of names, which is an interesting thing. Uh, in itself. He's called Dithyrambus because of the music that accompanies his manifestation. He's called Zagreus, which is the dismembered one, which is what Nietzsche, uh, Nietzsche's Zarathustra calls himself. Uh, and he has other names. Bromius means the thundering one. So go, Baki, go, go, go. This reminds the echo of the, of the crowd along the Southern, Southern California freeway with the O.J. Simpson affair. Down from the Phrygian hills, out into the spacious streets of Greece, the home of Dionysus. First of all, notice that we think of the Dionysian as energy, but the first note they strike is of fatigue, effortless effort, relaxation. You see, it's not, it's really a, what the French anthropologists call the abaissement du niveau mental, the lowering of the mental level. Relax, go with the flow. This is not energy coming into the system, it's a slackening of energy. And then they get into the romance of the Dionysian appeal. Burst into greenness. Take up the Bacchanalian beat. Touch God in a fit of sanctioned frenzy. 
Then all at once the whole land will dance. In Crete, the triple-crested Corabantes traced in vibrant skin the circle of my joy. The Corabantes are the are the are the priestesses of the cult who create a who take a goatskin and make a drum head out of it. And now they have the drum to beat. They married its percussive strength to the wailing sweetness of flutes, then put into Rhea's hands to draw the earth beat out and make it throb in Bacchic song. It just sounds like the, the birth of a new nature, spontaneity, uh, and so on. It seems so wonderful. And that's precisely what Euripides is up to. He's going to give us that version. And then he's going to break the news to us. It's like Eliot saying, if you do not come too close. See? The next thing Euripides, the chorus in Euripides is, says is this. How sweet to the body when breaking loose from the mountain revels you collapse to the ground in a fawn skin after hunting the goat. How sweet the kill, the fresh-smelling blood, the sacramental relishing of raw flesh. Now, this is his preamble to the whole play. This is what it's going to be about. The first chorus already has it. And now I want to flesh out, no pun intended, I guess pun intended, uh, what uh, what that means. And I'm going to quote Wallace Gray. I quoted him earlier. He's the professor from Columbia. He says this, One must erase from the mind the cherubic, jolly, drunken, dissolute Roman Bacchus and replace him with the terribly insecure, wrathful, and jealous young god we find in Euripides. In this play, Pentheus is intolerant, you would say, intolerant. At least the play is set up so that Pentheus is the one who appears intolerant in the same way that in Billy Budd, Claggart, scandalizes Billy until Billy hits Claggart, you see. And therefore, Billy becomes the one who is seemingly acting in an intolerant way. And in this play, Pentheus, who misses the point of, the, of what's going on, he's typical of the sort of law and order response to this, doesn't understand religion, either anthropologically or spiritually, and so just tries to put a lid on it. But Pentheus is characterized as the intolerant one. But the really intolerant one in this play is Dionysus. And we should think about that and then look at the modern world because this kind of smug comment to the effect that the intolerance is coming from all of those people who are really the spiritual descendants of the popes and the prophets. You know, they're the big intolerant ones. That's not true. The real intolerance, the real intolerance comes from those people who are trying to shut down that voice because they do not want it to interrupt the parade. And I think it's real, and, and that's true in this play too. And we have to notice who's the real intolerant one. And Gray alludes to that when he says we have to replace this, this bon vivant with the terribly insecure, wrathful, and jealous young god we find in Euripides. Associated with him in the stories are multiple human and divine mothers, a father who creates a womb within himself, a fe uh, female followers who, in religious frenzy, slaughter their own children. 
A youth with the form and grace of a young woman, Dionysus, is grandson to the goddess of earth and grain, son to a father who is also his mother, and is himself the powerful androgynous nature god. The final feature of the Dionysiac ritual is this raw flesh, is sparachmos and omophagia, to the two Greek words. Part of the ceremony in honor, still quoting Gray, part of the ceremony in honor of the god Dionysus is the sparagmos, namely the tearing apart of the live body of an animal or human victim who has become the theraphon, another Greek word, the ritual substitute for the body of Dionysus. And the omophagia, the eating of the live flesh and the drinking of the warm blood. By eating the god and drinking his blood, one becomes in theos, from which we get enthusiasm, imbued with the power of the god. So let's go back to these terms here. Sparagmos means not just dismembering, but the tearing apart of a live victim, limb from limb, while still alive which is what happens to Pentheus in this play. And the homophagia is cannibalism of, of the raw flesh. And the theraphon is the surrogate victim that's substituted for the god at the last minute. And all of this, the effect of all of this is to create this madness called entheos, the enthusiasm of the sacrificial mob. Pentheus is young. Pentheus is a young man. His mother refers to him later as being beardless. That's how young he is. He's exactly the same age as Dionysus. They're cousins. They're doubles, what Gerard would call mimetic doubles. So behind this story is a story of two rivals for power in Thebes. But in any event, there are two older figures in the play, namely old Cadmus, who's the old king, the grand, grandfather of Pentheus, and Tiresias, who's the, who's the priest of Apollo. Apollo is the god of order. He's also a product of the Dionysian frenzy, no doubt. But in any event, Tiresias is the, is the priest of the Apollonian cult. Both of them have caved in to the appeal of Dionysus. No one, no voice in this culture has spoken out against it. Every voice has become has essentially said, well, uh, has made some compromise with it, has chosen to speak in terms that it has defined. The Dionysian influence has defined the terms of the discourse. And these two old fellows, who should be the ones saying something about it, have compromised with it. And Pentheus finds this disgusting. And Pentheus has his own problems, but at least he recognizes that these old guys, and it's, Euripides is mocking them, because they're walking around on stage dressed, these are old guys, and they're walking around sta on stage, you know, dressed as hippies, so to speak. I mean, it's that sort of kind of pathetic scene of, you know, older people who should be, have some sense caving into the whole thing. And Pentheus, who decided he's the only one that's going to stand in the way of this, of this thing, he does what a lot of well-intentioned law and order types want to do, who have no sense of the religious power of what's happening. Nothing but religion will be, there's no alternative to this religious revival except another religion. 
And Pentheus doesn't understand that. He understand that he thinks that that one can put a lid on it, but in fact, it, the question is religion, and he he doesn't recognize that. So he says, "Let me catch that guy, and I'll bring him here." He thinks he's just talking about the priest of Dionysus, but it's really Dionysus disguised. He says that foul-mouthed foreigner. His tongue will earn him the foulest punishment my power can produce. Death by hanging. Well, what is death by hanging? It's another form of the Dionysian solution. You see, it's the respectable form of the Dionysian solution. It's like Captain Cook when he went to Tahiti. He stumbled upon a sacrificial ritual and he told the king who was very proud of the ritual, he said, if you did that in London, we'd hang you for it. And Cook didn't realize that he was invoking his own sacrificial ritual as a response to the sacrificial ritual in Tahiti. And P Pentheus is doing exactly the same thing. He said, I'll hang that guy. So at the end, if, if, the, if the story had ended with Pentheus's victory, it would be just as Dionysian. We just wouldn't recognize it because it would be the respectable or Zeus-like version of the Dionysian ritual. And anyway, then Tiresias and, and uh, Cadmus go through their little things. And there's a, there's, there's a lot of humor in the first part of this. And I won't have time to get to it, but it's very funny when you see these old guys stroking their chins and trying to be wise about this whole thing. And just and and Euripides is is obviously mocking at uh, the silliness with which they've compromised themselves. We today we would call them politically correct. They're trying their best to put the best face on it, but the underlying thing is that they're going to be politically correct. In one place, Tiresias says, speaking almost like an Enlightenment figure, he says, no amount of Bacchic revels can corrupt an honest woman. You see, that's when we get into this thing where the, the person is an individual, an entity. All the resources are inside that individual. Mimetic, the one thing that is not recognized is the power of mimesis. That if there's one thing that the Enlightenment missed, it was the power of mimesis. Not only did it miss it, it made a point of missing it. It could not look at that and still maintain its project. And so here you have the summation of it. No amount of Bacchic revels can corrupt an honest woman. In the same way somebody today would say, well, no amount of MTV or none of this is going to corrupt a 14-year-old. Come on. You see? And so the chorus, which is very enthusiastic, they congratulate Tiresias on being able to praise Apollo and Dionysus at the same time. Then there's a wonderful thing. The chorus says of Dionysus, he's life's liberating force. He is release of limbs and communion through dance. He is laughter and music and flutes. Oh, to be in Cyprus, the island home of Aphrodite, where the spirits of love thrill the blood of men with magic breezes. And in that mythical land of the many-mouthed river whose flood makes deserts bloom. Or, or where the muses play whose peerless beauty lovingly hugs the slopes of Olympus. Oh, Bromius, my Bromius, take me there. Pave the way with romp and prayer to the land of the graces, the land of desire, where freedom is law and women can revel with Bacchus. And Euripides is, is sounding that note in order to show where it's leading. Now, I'm going to do something that's unfair. I've done a lot of unfair things already today, but I'm, I'm going to do this. Uh, in a way, poking fun at people that are probably much better people than I am. But nevertheless, there's been a lot of publicity about this recently. I didn't know about it. Last November, there was a conference of women religious, I think a 
Protestant conference for the most part press. I read about this in New York Times. Peter Steinfeld, New York Times, wrote a column about it and, uh, and quoted a lot from it, more than a column, an article. And he quoted a lot of the things that went on in the conference. Now, there were probably great things that went on in the conference, but, but uh, there were some other things. And I, having just read that chorus from Euripides, I, I, I wanted to hearken to this. I'm just going to quote from things that are quoted. These were tape recordings that were made of the conference, and then some other people got wind of them. There's been a big hullabaloo about this. So here's from the article. We did not last night name the name of Jesus, said Reverend Barbara K. Lundbland, pastor of our Savior's Atonement Lutheran Church in New York City. Nor have we done anything in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, she continued, stirring laughter and cheers, according to the excerpts. I don't know if that's, a, if that's representative of the discourse. No doubt there were more serious things going on. Uh, but on the other hand, you get the following. I don't think we need a theory of atonement at all, said Reverend Dolores S. Williams, who teaches at Union Theological Seminary. That's no marginal place. That's a pretty central place. But, she says, I don't think we need folks hanging on crosses and blood dripping and weird stuff. Well, again, the discourse doesn't seem to be at the highest level. But And said Mary Hunt, co-director of the Women's Alliance for Theology, Ethics, and Ritual, whether it is Christian or not is, frankly, darling, something about which I no longer give a pope. Now, it's easy to mock stuff like this, you know, And but even as even though it is, when I do, which I shouldn't, people will immediately think, oh, he's being a... See, it would be, this guy's a patriarch, he wants to go back, he doesn't like women. Not that, not that, not that. Uh, so she says she doesn't want uh, folks hanging folks hanging on crosses, blood dripping, and weird stuff. So let's get rid of the weird stuff. And then you get the following. At the conclusion on Sunday morning, participants shared milk and honey in a ritual with overtones of a communion service and prayed in unison in a language meant to affirm women's sexuality and sensuality. Quote, here's the prayer, in unison. Our maker, Sophia, we are women in your image. With the hot blood of our wombs, we give form to new life. With the nectar between our thighs, we invite a lover. And with our warm body fluids, we remind the world of its pleasures and sensations. If it's an attempt to redefine Christian theology, give me a break. You see what I'm saying? This kind of thing is exactly what Euripides is talking about. Not because th these people are probably much nicer people than I am and be probably better Christians than I am and and l they're not going to go out and engage in some crazy thing that will lead to violence I don't think but I have but we have to say what are what is this a symptom of what is this a symptom of when what Euripides was doing at the beginning of the Baki is that he was saying look here are people who should know better namely Cadmus and Tiresias and look at them. They're strutting around on stage, wearing all of this garb, buying into it, trying to have it both ways. Well, it's not fair what I'm doing, but lest you think that I'm suggesting that Pentheus has the solution, he does not. And that's because there is no way of dealing with such a crisis. Such a crisis is a desperate, crude, crying out for 
some kind of transcendence. And no amount of back-to-business law and order stuff will do. It won't simply won't do. It just becomes fodder for the for the Dionysian invasion. And Pentheus is part of that. He's a staunch opponent of Dionysus, but it's his rival model. So as soon as Dionysus shows up, he falls for him. And as he does, behind him on stage, the palace falls apart. And the chorus says, the stones of the pillars are cracking, they are crashing to the ground. Bromius is here, blasting the roof with his laughter. In, in Galatians, Paul says, we are confined under the law, kept under constraint until faith should be revealed. So the law was our custodian until Christ came. What Pentheus wants to do is invoke the law against all this. But the law, the power of the law is being dissolved. This is the radical moment we are, where we live in human history. I mean, it's been going on for quite a while. But the power of the law to control these things is being destroyed by the biblical revelation all the while. The crisis that Dionysus represents can no longer be gaveled to a halt. And the question is, is there an alternative to it? It underscores the sort of perverse brilliance of Nietzsche when he said the world has to choose between Dionysus or Christ. Because the alternative to that choice, what made that choice unnecessary or what postponed that choice was the viability of what Second Thessalonians calls the catacomb, the cultural power that could keep these forces of chaos contained. And it's being dissolved by the Christian revelation. 